When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. It was raining on November 9, 1921, when the cruiser USS Olympia arrived at the Washington Navy Yard carrying the remains of an unidentified soldier. This casualty of World War I had died on a battlefield in France, one of thousands of men from the conflict whose names would never be known. But this particular soldier had been selected through a solemn process to represent them all in a burial at the Arlington National Cemetery. Upon his arrival, his flag-draped casket was met by all of the service chiefs, the Secretary of War, and General John J. Pershing. He was then escorted by the 3rd Cavalry Regiment through a slow, reverent procession to the Capitol Rotunda, where he lay in rest on a platform built for Abraham Lincoln. An honor guard of five men stood watch over him there, and the following day, over 90,000 people came to pay their respects to this man who gave his life in service of the country. Then, on the morning of November 11, 1921, at 8.30 a.m., the casket was removed from the Capitol and the unknown soldier was escorted through the streets of Washington, D.C. and what the Washington Post hailed as a, quote, procession without parallel. Thousands of onlookers watched as the military escorted their fallen brother to his final resting place, accompanied by the President of the United States, the Vice President, Justices of the Supreme Court, members of the Diplomatic Corps, wearers of the Congressional Medal of Honor, senators, congressmen, and generals, all on foot. When they arrived at Arlington, the deceased veteran was brought to the Memorial Amphitheater, where over 5,000 onlookers watched as the United States military conducted a beautiful and reverent funeral, 
and the President of the United States conferred upon him both the Congressional Medal of Honor and the Distinguished Service Cross, a symbol of respect not just to the man himself, but to honor every casualty of the war whose name would never be known. Then, to conclude the ceremony, three salvos of artillery took place, followed by the somber sounding of taps. Today, there are three men buried at the tomb of the unknown soldier, one from each of the world wars, as well as the war in Korea. The grave is permanently guarded, day and night, year-round. And while Arlington isn't the largest national cemetery in the country, this particular grave is certainly one of the most revered. Of all the reverence that has gone into making Arlington the highly esteemed resting place of over 400,000 men and women, its origins as a burial ground were hardly noble. Its existence an unfortunate necessity in the midst of the American Civil War and its location seemingly chosen out of spite as the land upon which the Arlington National Cemetery now sits was once the home of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. Take the Arlington Memorial Bridge out of Washington, D.C., over the Potomac River. You'll see a stunning 19th century mansion sitting atop a hillside on the horizon. The beautiful Greek Revival structure is two stories tall, characterized by its symmetry and classical details, boasting an ornate facade that features a row of eight colossal columns. The mansion was originally constructed to be a living memorial to George Washington, overlooking the capital city of the nation he helped create. But today, the mansion is part of one of the country's largest national cemeteries after being seized by the federal government during the Civil War. George Washington Park Custis was born in April of 1771 to John Park Custis and Eleanor Calvert. He was the grandson of Martha Washington. His father, John Park, was a product of her first marriage, and he was later adopted by her nation's first president. So as a result, George Washington Park Custis 
was not only named in honor of his step-grandfather, but he also grew up at Mount Vernon under the guidance of his grandparents. And as such, he had an immense deal of respect and fondness for the president. Then, in 1803, after receiving a large inheritance from his father's estate, which included money, land, and other property, George Washington Park Custis began building a mansion on the highest hill of an 1,100-acre piece of property in Alexandria County, Virginia, just across the Potomac River from what was then Washington City. He named it Arlington after the existing Custis family homestead on the eastern shore of Virginia. But this property wasn't meant to just be the Custis family home. It was also meant to serve as something of a living memorial to George Washington, a place for Custis's collection of Washington artifacts. And so that meant the mansion had to be fit for, well, for lack of a better term, a king. English architect George Hadfield, who had worked on the U.S. Capitol building, designed the Arlington House, which became the first mansion to exhibit the Greek Revival style of architecture in the country. Of course, construction was done almost entirely by the estate's enslaved workforce, who cleared and leveled the building site, harvested trees for the timber, and handmade the bricks that were used to construct the wall. These bricks were then covered with a cement finish to appear as marble and sandstone. At this point in time, Custis owned roughly 600 to 100 enslaved persons, a number that fluctuated over the years as he maintained an enslaved workforce at each of his three properties. Some of these men were part of the inheritance from his father's estate, while others were from his grandmother, Martha Washington, from whom he inherited 57 enslaved people. It's estimated that during his life, Custis owned upwards of 200 enslaved persons, with about 60 working at Arlington. Construction of the mansion took almost a decade and a half and was completed in several phases. First were the north and south wings, the living areas of the home, which were done in 1804. But the large center section and portico, which spans 140 feet long, and includes eight massive columns five feet in diameter each, wasn't completed until 1817, with the final touches in 1818. The main reason for this delay were the material shortages that occurred during the War of 1812 and the British burning of Washington, D.C. But the mansion wasn't the only lavish part of the estate, which also boasted a cultivated English garden on the slope to the east of the house, a large flower garden and arbor south of the house, and an area known as the grove to the west of the house, where tall elm and oak trees formed a canopy. And there was also a picnic area known as Arlington Spring, located on the bank of the Potomac River. While George Washington Park Custis saw Arlington as a memorial to his beloved grandfather, it was also meant to be a home for his family. In 1804, Custis married Mary Lee Molly Fitzhugh, and together the couple had four children we know of, although some believe it may have been five or six. However, only one lived to adulthood, their daughter, Marianna Randolph Custis. So 
since Custis saw himself as George Washington's heir apparent. He relished welcoming folks into his home so that he could show off his beloved collection of relics from the president and Mount Vernon. So as you can imagine, life at the Arlington estate included quite a bit of activity, with frequent social events attracting a multitude of high-profile visitors. But likely the biggest event of them all occurred on June 20th, 1831, when Mariana Custis married Lieutenant Robert E. Lee at the estate. Lee had just graduated from West Point only two years prior, and he had met Mariana through his mother, Ann Carter Lee, who was a cousin of Mary Fitzhugh Custis. After the couple wed, they shared Arlington with the Custis family, but the Lees spent much of their married life traveling between army duty stations and the estate where six of the seven Lee children were born. As years passed, Lee took on a greater role in assisting his father-in-law with the management of the estate. Custis was not known to be a great manager as none of his properties were particularly profitable. Instead, he chose to devote most of his energy to other varied activities that included painting, playwrights, promoting improvements to American agriculture, and a fleeting interest in supporting the American Colonization Society, which sought to resettle freed African Americans in the West African colony of Liberia. Yet none of his endeavors were marked by great or lasting success. When George Washington Park Custis died in October of 1857, the Arlington estate was left to his daughter, Mary Lee, as a life inheritance. This allowed her to live there and run the plantation for the rest of her life, but it didn't give her the right to sell any portion of it, as ownership of the property fell to her eldest son, George Washington Custis Lee. But while Mary may have taken over her father's property, it was Robert E. Lee who served as executor of his father-in-law's will. It was then, as a state manager, that Lee was forced to make a controversial decision regarding Arlington's enslaved workforce. Several records show that when George Washington Park Custis was alive, some of the enslaved individuals at Arlington were provided with unique opportunities that weren't available to others during that time. Mrs. Custis was a devout Episcopalian, and as such, she personally took on the task of tutoring enslaved individuals in basic literacy, giving them the opportunity to read the Bible. This was an opposition of Virginia law, which prohibited educating enslaved people. But Mrs. Custis, her daughter, and granddaughters did it anyway. But moreover, Mrs. Custis advocated for the emancipation of several women and children, successfully persuading her husband to grant them freedom. But most notably of all is that in his will, George Washington Park Custis indicated that all 192 of the enslaved men, women, and children across all three of his properties would be emancipated following his death. Unfortunately, this was not an immediate order. It just had to be enacted within five years and only under the condition that the estate would not be too adversely harmed financially by such a loss, requiring it to occur after all outstanding debts had been paid. 
but due to Custis's lack of managerial skill, Lee determined that there was no way he could follow through with his father-in-law's wishes. In spite of the fact that Custis had outright told the enslaved people what he had done, so Robert E. Lee took a three-year leave of absence from the army to try and turn things around. But as you can expect, his time was marked with a great bit of discord as many of the enslaved men actively defied orders or attempted to seek the freedom promised to them. Lee did not enjoy this at all. In a letter to his son, he wrote that Custis left him with, quote, an unpleasant legacy forcing him to be much more of a taskmaster and disciplinarian than his father-in-law ever was. At one point, he ordered more land be farmed for additional crops that could be sold, but the persistent pushback eventually forced him to rent the enslaved men and women to other plantations so he didn't have to manage them himself. Then, when the five-year mark came to release the men and women, Lee petitioned the state of Virginia to extend the time of Custis's designation. But the state refused, and in December of 1862, Lee executed deeds of manumission. Finally, the enslaved men and women owned by George Washington Park Custis were free, just as they had been promised. Of course, at this point in time, this formal manumission might be considered by many to be entirely unnecessary, as the Civil War had already begun and Lee and his family had fled the estate, which was at that point occupied by the United States Army. Now, as you can expect, the challenges that Lee's father-in-law left him would soon pale in comparison to the issues that he would face, as the fate of the Arlington estate was taken entirely out of his hands. We'll explore this and more, including the creation of the most esteemed national cemetery in the country, after the break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. 
On April 20, 1861, Colonel Robert E. Lee, who had been offered command of the United States Army, resigned his commission and chose to fight for the state of Virginia, which officially seceded from the Union only three days prior. Almost immediately, federal forces recognized that Arlington House was going to be a problem. Perched on high ground overlooking the Capitol, if the House was allowed to remain in Confederate hands, it would leave the seat of the United States government incredibly vulnerable. So on May 3, 1861, United States General Irvin McDowell was ordered to clear Arlington and the city of Alexandria, Virginia, of all troops not loyal to the United States. Lee already knew that this was coming, and recognizing the vulnerability of the estate, he wrote to his wife, who remained there after he left for the Confederacy. War is inevitable, and there is no telling when it will burst around you. But Mary Lee would have none of it. This was her family's home, and she vowed not to, quote, stir from this house even if the whole Northern army were to surround it. Unfortunately, she'd soon be left without a choice and was forced to flee from the estate where she had grown up, knowing that federal forces would soon occupy it. So on May 14th and 15th, Mary packed up her family's silver, George Washington's papers, and 12 wagons of household goods. She would never again set foot within the walls of the Arlington House. On May 24, 1861, federal troops seized Arlington without any opposition, and the house was not only used as the headquarters of Brigadier General Irvin McDowell, but also as his officers' barracks while the rest of the men camped outside. Within a week of their arrival, three New York regiments set up camp on the grounds. The men felled trees and dismantled rail fences for firewood to cook and stay warm. One soldier wrote, quote, the fences are gone and the country around her is all stumped over and trod down. Ain't it pleasant? As for the house, Initially, soldiers attempted to loot it, and not only were some artifacts discovered missing, but graffiti was also scribbled on the attic rafters. But while Mary Custis Lee may have fled her childhood home, she at least left it in the care of someone she trusted, an enslaved woman named Selena Norris Gray. Selena was a second-generation enslaved woman at the Arlington Estate, and served as the personal lady's maid to Mary Custis Lee. Mrs. Lee had great trust in Selena, giving her the keys to the property and entrusting her with the responsibility to protect the treasures of the home that the Lees were forced to leave behind, including family heirlooms that had once belonged to Mary's great-grandparents. This relationship was deep and is a prime example of the confusing interconnectedness of the lives of the enslaved men and women and the family who owned them, as Selena took the role very seriously and personally. In fact, after finding several heirlooms missing, she is said to have confronted the army officers, providing a list to General McDowell of said items, 
convincing him of the significance of the Washington collection and that he needed to secure it. So McDowell did. He locked the attic and basement to prevent further theft and had all the remaining heirlooms crated and labeled, captured at Arlington, before shipping them to the patent office in D.C. for safekeeping. Unfortunately, not even Selena could stop the house itself from being taken away from the family who built it. In June of 1862, the United States Congress enacted legislation that imposed a property tax on all land in insurrectionary areas of the United States. And so after an assessment, a tax of $92.07 was levied against the Arlington estate, roughly $2,765 today. But after fleeing south to areas protected by the Confederacy and suffering from severe rheumatoid arthritis, Mary Lee wasn't able to travel and pay the tax, and instead dispatched a cousin to make the transaction on her behalf. But the tax commissioners insisted that the proxy could not pay the debt, and that the property owner must come in person to provide payment. But Mary Lee couldn't travel, so the Arlington estate's ownership was officially taken as a penalty for non-payment of taxes. And on January 11, 1864, the United States government won the property at auction with a bid of $26,800, about a half million today. But if the loss of her family's property wasn't bad enough, the transformation that was about to take place at Arlington would devastate Mary Lee. The following spring, as the war intensified, hospitals in Washington became overwhelmed by the growing number of soldiers being sent there from battlefields all over Virginia, many of whom would not survive. As a result, the city cemeteries filled up, and so in May of 1864, the army began burying soldiers along the northern border of the Arlington Estate, about a half mile away from the mansion. Quartermaster General Montgomery Meggs had been in search of a suitable place for a new cemetery. And since the Army had been occupying Arlington since 1861, and the government had just purchased the property, he saw it as an obvious choice. But of course, the fact that this plantation was Robert E. Lee's home made it even more appealing to the general who, quote, viewed the creation of the cemetery as a means for restoring honor to the property, which he felt Lee had dishonored by resigning from the U.S. Army and leading the Confederate forces. So on June 15, 1864, he formally proposed Arlington as the site for a cemetery in a letter to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who then wasted no time in approving the request. And as a result a new national cemetery was officially created. As you might expect, folks who were loyal to the United States celebrated this decision. The June 17th edition of the National Republican stated, 
The powers that be have been induced to appropriate 200 acres immediately around the house of General Lee on Arlington Heights for the burial of soldiers dying in the army hospitals of this city. The grounds are handsomely adorned and in every respect admirably fitted for the sacred purpose to which they have been dedicated. The people of the entire nation will one day, not very far distant, heartily thank the initiators of this movement. This and the contraband establishment there are righteous uses of the estate of the rebel General Lee and will never dishonor the spot made venerable by the occupation of Washington. At first, the officers stationed in Arlington House fought against the burials, not really wanting to be living amongst the dead. But Meggs was concerned that the Lees might regain the property after the war, so he pushed for burials to be located as close to the mansion as possible, quote, to more firmly secure the ground by rendering it undesirable as a future residence or homestead. So in mid-June of 1864, Another 44 were buried along the southern and eastern sides of the once stately gardens. Soon enough, thousands of wooden grave markers spread across 200 acres of the Arlington estate, which over the following year grew to approximately 15,000 burials. Yet still, the general was concerned that the Lees would return to their mansion. So in April of 1866, he ordered the construction of a tomb for 2,111 unknown soldiers who perished at the battles of Bull Run and other fights in the vicinity of Washington. This tomb would be located in Mrs. Lee's Rose Garden. In the end, the quartermaster general got his way. Following the war, Robert E. Lee and his wife made no attempt to regain ownership of the property but they were clearly heartbroken by the outcome. Lee wrote of his feelings in a letter to his daughters. Your old home has been so desecrated that I cannot bear to think of it. I should have preferred it to have been wiped from the earth. As for Mary Custis Lee, she could never quite let her family home go, writing. Life is waning away. Do not think I can die in peace until I've seen it once more. So just a few months before her death, in November of 1873, Mrs. Lee traveled to the now Arlington Cemetery and was horrified by the state of the home that her father had built, lamenting, They have done everything to debase and desecrate it. She was so upset that she refused to even step out of her carriage and she never returned again. Following her death, the property was meant to be inherited by her son had the government not confiscated it. So George Washington Custis Lee filed a suit against the United States government to regain the property. After extensive appeals, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1882, the case of United States versus Lee ended with a 5-4 majority in favor of Lee stating that the property had been illegally confiscated in 1864, seized without due process, 
and that the 17,000 graves there were trespassing on private property. But Lee wasn't really interested in actually getting the property back. Rather, he just wanted to be properly compensated for its value. And after several months of negotiations, he and the federal government settled on a price of $150,000, roughly $4.5 million today. Today, the United States Army manages the 639 acres of the estate as Arlington National Cemetery, and the National Park Service maintains the Arlington House. In the 1920s, the mansion received a significant restoration with the help of the children of Selena Gray, who provided valuable information, details, and personal stories about the house. This restoration placed the home as it was when it was constructed by George Washington Park Custis and only included items manufactured prior to 1830, an interpretation that essentially ignored the Confederate general's role and presence there. Then in the 1950s, the house was redesignated the Custis Lee Mansion and it became a permanent memorial to Robert E. Lee with the interior furnishings altered to match the time when Lee lived there. Now, as of this recording, the mansion is formally named Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial. But as recently as 2022, there's been a push to redesignate the location as simply the Arlington House National Historic Site, thus allowing more inclusivity at the location and better reflecting the intertwined lives of all those who live there, free and enslaved. While this change is certainly a magnet for debate, for the most part, it has been supported by descendants of the Lee family, as well as the descendants of those enslaved on the site. Yet no matter what it is called, the Arlington House continues to sit on that hillside overlooking the Potomac River an exquisite landmark that stands amidst the graves of over 400,000 veterans and their eligible dependents. Men and women who fought in every major war and conflict in the history of the United States. My name is Brandon Schecksneider. And you are listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider. If you're a fan of the show and would like more content, be sure to join us over on Patreon or become a premium subscriber on the Apple Podcast app. There, you'll receive access to both ad-free and monthly bonus episodes. For more info on Southern Gothic, be sure to visit southerngothicmedia.com today. And as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Lady Shack.
What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.